Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we aim to explore the science of crime and the practical application of the science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners, as well as other professionals. Co-hosts Dr. Reed Hayes of the Loss Prevention Research Council and Tom Meehan of Control Tech discuss a wide range of topics with industry experts, thought leaders, solution providers, and many more. On today's episode, our featured guest, Grant Drove of the University of Arkansas, discusses place in crime, environmental criminology, risk terrain modeling, and much more. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Be a leader in loss prevention by implementing integrated solutions that enhance safety, reduce shrink, and helps improve merchandising, operations, and customer service. Bosch integrated security and communication solutions span zones one through four in the LPRC's zones of influence, while enriching the customer experience and delivering valuable data to help increase retail profitability. Learn more by visiting Bosch online at boschsecurity.com. All right. Well, welcome, everybody, again to another episode of LPRC's Crime Science. Um, Today, I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Tom Meehan, uh, Chief Strategy Officer for Control Tech, longtime uh, LPAP practitioner. Um, And we have a special guest today. Uh, We've got Dr. Grant Draw of uh, the University of Arkansas. Grant is uh, uh, on the tenure track, assistant professor there. Um, But most importantly, at least to me and to this podcast and our team here at the LPRC and at UF, uh, is Grant's um, special expertise uh, with environmental criminology and place and crime more specifically and trying to understand, you know, what goes on in a specific place and around that place at different scales really helps tell the story and, and help us understand why some places just have more problems than others. But most importantly, what are the indications from what we're seeing that can help us make the people in that place safer and more secure? So uh, with that, Grant, if I could, I'm going to start off with a couple questions. And I think the first one was, you know, how did you, how did you personally uh, get involved in crime prevention and criminology and, and in research on that end? Not surprisingly, I never planned on this at all. I never planned on going to grad school, getting a PhD, or even work working in research as a whole. Um, When I started my college education, I was in construction management, architecture. During the time, it was the recession. Didn't really think I had much of an outlook, so I switched over. And at the time, it was called administration of justice, so a very kind of archaic feel to it. I was always interested in criminal justice, crime occurrence, victimization, and more so specifically, juvenile delinquency. So nothing even with the spatial realm, I had no idea that environmental criminology was a thing. I got talked into graduate school and uh, by a professor that's at Cincinnati, Nick Casaro. I don't think he believes me when I tell him I had no idea about the research side or even grad school until he pulled me aside. I did an internship during my master's with the Illinois State Terrorism Intelligence Center. That really got me hooked on the crime analysis side of criminal justice. With that, I took a crime mapping class by, I would say, my mentor, and that really got me into this realm in general, Jim LeBeau. And after that, I was hooked. I mean, once I was seeing things visually through GIS, looking at pattern analysis, I was hooked from a data standpoint. Things started to make sense more. Statistics from a spatial perspective just made more sense to me going through it. At that point, I viewed it as I'm detecting patterns. So if you find patterns within data, At that point, from a crime perspective, that's preventable. If you're picking up uh, patterns over time, you can change that or hopefully change that. So that's what really got me into the crime prevention side, just in terms of if you can detect patterns, why not try to prevent that from occurring in the long term, short term, 
And with that, I've worked a lot with criminal justice system agencies, law enforcement mostly. They have mounds of data, very rich data. But how do you weed through that and find, excuse me, how do you find quality information from that? How do you build and strategize initiatives to lower crime? That's where I've enjoyed it, is helping them understand just crime analysis, detecting patterns within their own jurisdiction, and how to strategize from that. Uh, with that, um, in academia, there's a side of, it's more of a cynical view, so I'm told, is I need to publish my research, and I get in the bad habit of working with agencies, helping them answer a question that they have or I have with data, but I never do anything with it. So I've developed this bad habit of being able to pose questions, answer them, but not really doing anything with it to get it out to the public. So I've been slowly working with agencies on publishing what I do with them. Uh, that's always a big part of, I guess, expanding science, what we know. But with that, it's really just kind of grown from there. I was never planning on this, kind of got hooked in this spatial realm, and doors just continue to kind of open uh, as time progressed. That's good stuff. And um, I think that that's what's always important for a lot of our listeners, especially the students that, that tune in, is nothing in real life is linear. It's not a straight line, right, Grant? And I know Tom would agree that there are very, very few people that we even run across that end up doing exactly what they thought and probably not even really close to what they started out thinking they might do. So it sounds like your story's pretty similar uh, with that. And, um, I, you know, real quick, I want to dive into, you know, you did a lot of your training at Rutgers. Um, and to us that are out there in the criminology area, we think a lot of Rutgers, but particularly the environmental aspect of the criminology. And again, I know our listeners know the environment means, uh, yes, we'd like to protect whales and parrots and things like that and use these techniques for that. But what we're talking about is we can't shape the genomics or child raising or early childhood experience in peer groups uh, of people around us, but we can help shape our environment online or in person to maybe influence behavior there. Um, but can you tell me a little bit about Rutgers um, what you learned there and the focus there and things that you took away that were helpful so far and you think are going to be helpful for the community at large? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was given the opportunity to have a postdoc position at Rutgers, and I was managing at the time a Project Safe Neighborhood Initiative. With those, it's aimed at reducing gang and gun violence, and that one was in Jersey City. So with that, I worked with Joel Kaplan and Les Kennedy and Paul Boxer. And with that was a place-based policing initiative. So with that, it was for me, project experience that I had not been exposed to before, really handling community group meetings, data analysis, working with police departments as well, all in that area. And we had a lot of fun interactions and meetings. So what we did and what I took away from kind of my time at Rutgers was understanding from much more of the research side and practitioner. So how do you transform that knowledge that we as researchers have and get that to the practitioners in the field. So to me, that was a very foreign approach. I didn't know how to do that, and that's why we're, now we have translational criminology trying to bring together academics and researchers. That's, I think that's a hashtag on Twitter, Pracademics, trying to merge the two fields. Uh, but a big part was trying to better understand how place matters in research, and especially with diverse outcomes, crime being one of it. That's always a big part of, yes, people are committing crimes or being victimized, 
but with a lot of research and it continues to show place does matter. So with that, working with Joel and Les, with Chris Trey modeling RTM especially, that allowed me to kind of throw, I'd say darts at the board and see what stuck, throw ideas back and forth. Yeah, you hit it pretty well that um, we're looking at uh, place and crime and how critical that is and that Rutgers, because of some of faculty and the other grad students and others that are there and the tools that were developed there, are focused and uh, are thinking that way. Yeah. Uh, so with Rutgers, I mean, they're very well known for their environmental criminology, the history of who's been there, what they're doing now. It's been phenomenal. I mean, it's really pushed the envelope of understanding crime and place, larger spatial temporal patterns of crime. With Joel and Les, a lot of people um, associate them with RTM. They are the developers of risk terrain modeling. For those who are not familiar with RTM, it's a spatial analytical tool that assists in understanding what features from the physical landscape, such as bars, parks, bus stops, relate to a spatial outcome. With that, oftentimes we look at crime. You can change it as long as it's a spatial outcome. You can look at how the built environment affects some type of outcome. So with that, I was drawn immediately to that from a spatial standpoint. At that time, uh, when their first big paper came out, a lot of research has looked at hotspots, so crime clusters, you can use crime to predict crime. That's great, but a lot of those research articles themselves, they go into great descriptions of what's going on in those hotspots. Is it a hotel, is it a bus stop, is it a bar? So you're understanding what's contributing to the formation of a hotspot, but that's post hoc after the fact, when RTM is taking essentially what we know from that literature and literature on just single effects of bars on crime, parks, bus stops, and looking at that at the forefront, using those as factors to develop relationships with crime occurrence. With that, you can use that in a predictive model or a manner of, we know what aspects of the built environment are now impacting occurrence of crime. So with that, our team continues to expand. I am blessed to still work with Joel and Les on quite a few projects related to RTM. We have one now with uh, some faculty members here at UA and one at IUPUI on using RTM for terrorism events in the US. Can we detect spatial patterns for that? Can they be predicted based on the physical landscape and even the social demographics side of larger neighborhood effects, community context across the US? So our records itself has been instrumental. The students they have there has been great on the development from a crime and place perspective. You can see them at many top universities, programs as academics, even place in agencies. So where Rutgers for me and my career changed it dramatically in terms of job opportunities, training, skill sets. It opened the door for many, many opportunities, much of which I am still benefiting from now. Fantastic. Tom, let me go over to you. Um, what are some thoughts, some questions uh, for Grant? So I, I, I think uh, it's all very fascinating. So I, I in my previous life, actually um, was responsible for data at, uh, for quite a few years. And we worked with a, a data scientist and actually the Austin Research Council to create a shortage or, or shrink indicator model, as well as a violence indication model. And um, so RTM was something that we, we we looked at, but I'll, you know, we had a data scientist and some really smart people there. Taking all of what you're talking about today, I understand it because I, I went through it. But if you were talking to a regular retailer, uh, someone who has an analytics team, but is trying to really start using environment into a risk model, what are some basic do's and don'ts if you could share 
or principles of, you know, and I know that's a loaded question, but the starting point of, you know, what you see as the confusion for folks. Confusion in terms of what you're putting in a model or trying to understand just the, how the built environment is so correlated with crime. Pro probably both. So what, you know, what, what you're putting in the model and then how the environment impacts it. Oh yeah. So for a lot of our models that we built, it's oftentimes based on crime data, crime that's known to the police. So with that, there's a caveat, not all crime is reported to police. So the dark figure crime is unknown. So that is always a limitation of what we do. And depending on the crime type, some are going to be reported more than others. With that, you have to understand what you're putting in a model from the get-go of what you're putting in and how to translate it on the back end. If you're trying to look at how the built environment and crime are related, the first place to start, obviously, is one work with a police department. There's a huge outpouring of online data portals that have access to crime data. So you can see it. Typically, these have a link to some type of map, so you can already look by address and get an understanding of just place places where crime is high. When you're trying to make connections to where crime is occurring, I start with students in Excel. Excel actually has mapping capabilities I don't know if people know about, uh, but it's a super handy tool of you can drill into map crime in Excel and really look at what's going on. So you can type in an address, zoom in to see if you have a store or location that you're trying to look at. You can see what types of crime are occurring around that. You can create a simple density map, a hotspot map of the crime that you put in. And when you're trying to build those connections, you have to understand what else is in the environment. So a standalone store is going to be different than a store that's in a strip mall that also has fast food places around it to where there's more than one retail chain or multiple types of built environment factors. It could be multiple bus stops, fast food, large retailers, all in very close proximity. So people are coming to that area for multiple reasons. With that, crime opportunities increase just based on sheer interactions of potential victims and offenders. With opportunities arising like that, you have to understand why people are using that space. And that's where understanding the crime data is important to understand what's being reported, but also how people are using space in general. If people are waiting at a bus stop, that's different than getting off at a bus stop and say walking to a grocery store or to a liquor mart, liquor store, convenience store, bodega, or fast food, that type of thing. No, no, that's good. Um, and so I thought, Grant, another question would be, um, you know, maybe explain if you could, you mentioned RTM, risk terrain modeling. Um, you've clearly, you've worked with it. You've helped help uh, enhance and improve it. Um, you've done it for research purposes. You've done it to help uh, local law enforcement uh, get a little more focused and effective and things like that. So maybe could you, what are some of the, and this kind of touches, I think, a little bit on what Tom's talking about, but what are some of the inputs into the, the program uh, and how do those help us make sense of the variance and problems that we might expect at a given place? Yeah, so for with RTM, I personally stick to oftentimes measures of the built environment. So accessing, accessing data on bus stops, grocery stores, vacant properties, liquor stores, grocery stores, a multitude of, think about the urban environment itself, the landscape. And when you put those in, you're trying to find how those, spatially correlate with, say, crime occurring. With that, you can think of your old overhead projector uh, teaching type devices where each 
sheet is a different layer. So how do bus stops relate to crime? How do grocery stores relate to crime? How do liquor stores? But now if you lay those over each other, when you have bus stops that are in close proximity to grocery stores, risk increase. With that, when you have multiple factors, you want to test that to see if the co-location of multiple risk factors contribute to crime occurrence. So that's what RTM is trying to identify is, one, are these factors first correlated with crime? And if so, when you're building your best model. So what combination of factors gives you the best, um, I would say the most variance explained? How much of it is related to crime? So you can build your own. Is it a bus stop in close proximity to a liquor store that's also close to large retail chains with that are big box retail chains. If you have those three in similar locations, the risk of crime is likely going to be increased. So with that, you know what's contributing to crime occurrence based on individual level relationships, but it's enhanced or increased when they're in close proximity to one another versus being a standalone uh, facility itself. So, you know, let me... One thing we look at, um, Grant, is we look at it, it, the main effects of things, you know, uh, things about that place or people, uh, and then the interaction of those things. And to try and understand, you know, I'll give you a very quick example with signage. We found that, you know, the, the text size doesn't matter on its own. Um, the, if you have a symbol, a logo on a sign, um, the size of that doesn't really matter. But when you look at them both, that there's a ratio between size of the logo, let's say it's an eye looking at you, and then this says the text says we're watching you, that there's actually a ratio between the two. So when they interact with each other, you have an, a pretty profound effect. Um, so the sign can actually affect behavior. Um, and, you, and so because of that, we can figure out how to manipulate the size, the color, those things about the sign, where we place it, how often we replace it, and so on to affect behavior. Um, and I know you just kind of talked about RTM. It primarily looks at the built environment. Um, and I was going to ask you, can you describe you know, other things about the environment that aren't necessarily structural or built um, and how those interact with each other? Oh, yeah. I mean, think about any city as a whole. We oftentimes, especially if you going somewhere new, almost a tourism effect. The idea is, or you ask a concierge or someone local, where do you want to stay away from? So you get a description there oftentimes of the seediness or what makes an area bad. But there's also just general geography. So if you think about how rivers or streams or lakes separate areas, so that dictates how people move in an environment itself, how hilly it is, the walkability factor of it. You can also think about the socio-demographics of it as well. It's Tons of research that looks at the neighborhood effects on crime, the social structure that comes from the American Census, so the American Community Survey, where you can get that data. So there's a combination of social factors. You can look at actual geographic uh, land, actual landscape and features, and then the built environment. So it's a combination of both edge effects from the landscape of how even say interstates are positioned. Those can have edge effects versus the social boundaries as well as the built environment effects as well. So you have a multitude of landscape features. RTM focuses usually on the built environment. I've done some research with a colleague here at UA, Sean Thomas, that integrates RTM 
and more of your social disorganization research, so accounting for not only the built environment, but also the social impact of neighborhoods or the social structure of neighborhoods. Did you find sort of, okay, there may be some main effects of the built and then the structures and then the, the social environment and then how those two interact and clash, if you will. Have you guys found that kind of evidence? Yeah. So we did this in Little Rock, and the first idea was due to main effect. So the built environment mattered. It predicted crime significantly. Social structure disadvantage worked as well. And then we did a follow-up paper of an interaction. So the idea was as risk increases, the risk of opportunity for crime increases through RTM, we thought that, that would be higher in neighborhoods that are more disadvantaged. What we found was through the interaction in the most disadvantaged neighborhoods, risk really didn't matter at all. It was the social structure of a neighborhood that mattered more than the actual built environment risk itself. That was a very nuanced finding for us. We're working on a couple other papers now for different cities to see if this holds. But it shows that depending on larger social structure of a neighborhood, the built environment could have an effect just depending on the level of disadvantage. Excellent. So that's the kind of uh, those are the kind of results that not only are uh, providing some scientific empirical evidence, but uh, that that others and us that didn't conduct the research can start to build on to shape and see uh, what other evidence we can add and how we might use that in the different types of places and spaces that we're that we're working on. Um, Tom, let me go over to you. Uh, further thoughts and questions. I think um, I have a lot of questions that are probably more opinion. And I know that, you know, we're, we're always talking about science, but with, and, um, you know, how can I pose this without it coming off negative? We're in a, a world where the words like uh, prescriptive analytics and data modeling and artificial intelligence and machine learning have transitioned from what before were really seen as academic or mathematic terms into marketing terms. And this um, almost overuse of data is happening. In your world of being a scientist and a researcher, what are some things that you can, you know, some advice you could give, and this is probably more opinion-based, so that, you know, you don't get lost in that storm of data? Well, that's great. I mean, I, I use Twitter for academic purposes, and especially in the past couple months, the idea of just artificial intelligence and the bias within it is a huge topic right now. But if you think about the era we're in, data is everywhere. I mean, just access to data, data collection. Your phone knows more about you than you know yourself for the most part. There's a quite a bit of, I would say, conversation that needs to occur around what does the data actually capture? So what do you have access to and what can you do with it? At the end of the day, an AI program, a statistical model, the most advanced uh, application you want to use with it, still has to be interpreted and used by humans. So there's still, at the end of the day, a human element to it. So a big part of predictive analytics of crime is, so we, we're predicting where crime's going to occur, potentially. At the end of the day, if it's policing that's gonna be used, police are going to go to an area based on an analytical program. With that, what type of policing is being used? For the longest time, I've heard multiple Officers give the idea of, we know where crimes occurring. It's been occurring in 10, 15, 20 years. So using the same methodologies to try to lower crime, and oftentimes the mentality is just through arrests. So through arrests, we're going to lower crime. But if it's still occurring in the same places, 
that hasn't been working well. You're not changing the environment within that. The behaviors, the norms, the attractiveness, all those places remain beyond just the arrest. So with that, analytics can give you great information, but how do humans use that? I think that's where the conversation has really started to pick up of no matter what type of data you have, no data is pure. There's going to be bias in how it's collected, especially if you look at criminal justice and crime-related data. There's bias within it. There's a number of podcasts, documentaries, uh, research articles on bias within data. We have to be cognizant of that. Some fascinating things I've seen with a movement towards using predictive analytics from a social science perspective, especially with crime or criminal justice law enforcement agencies, is developing almost a citizen resident oversight committee or to review how police departments are using this to where it's not infringing on American residential rights, constitutional rights themselves. So we have this big idea that this algorithm is going to save the world. It's going to be the next best thing. But we don't know how to use that from a human perspective. Yes, it identifies where our relationship, but what are we going to do about it? That's where I think it's almost a data overload. At this point, we have too much data, not enough value in it. And that's where it comes down to theoretically, does it make sense to have this in a model that you're trying to test? What does this give you? What does this provide you? If you're throwing data in just because you have it, that's going to be hard to interpret. You don't know what you're doing with it at the back end. So say a relationship. Relationship comes back as significant. You don't know why you put the data in in the first place. How are you supposed to interpret it on the back end? So what data you are using and accessing needs to have some type of thought process. Obviously, a theoretical understanding of how the two should be related helps. But if you're throwing everything in but the kitchen sink, that's going to be problematic from any type of predictive analytics, even just simple crime analysis data analytics. You need to understand the data before you even put it in a model. So that's helpful, Grant. I think, uh, like you say, we've got a way – um, a lot of things, and um, and I know as scientists we are we're basically on a mission here, and uh, and I know particularly with our teams at UF and at the LPRC that we're here to help um, protect vulnerable people, um, and you know, and then we go from there, and so we are always concerned about public opinion, about uh, any kind of legal or litig litigation type concerns. But at the end of the day, um, we're trying to help very vulnerable people uh, be safer from victimizers and, you know, from becoming victims. So, you know, these are incredible topics, but I, I really am, in, am interested in, like you said, uh, it's not like we have a lack of data now um, and not even, you know, pretty good data, but, but everything has some bias to it. Everything has a lot of unintentional error uh, in other ways as well. Um, and so how do we help narrow down? But I know with a father and grandfather that are physicians, it's the same issue and it always will be. You know, what, we've got all this incredible imaging data and all kind of measurements data and everything going on. But, you know, there's just it's fraught with error um, and there is inherent bias in what goes in and then how we interpret what what we're seeing and on and on. But but, you know, the real world is here and the real world is relatively can be dangerous and so um we've got to do something and we've got to we've got to figure it out together so we are very very appreciative of you and your colleagues and others um 
particularly in the social sciences and, and in particular, you know, environmental criminology, saying, look, we're going to help uh, develop but continue to dial in the tools that the practitioner needs because, you know, there's real theft, fraud, and violence going on in, uh, out there and in our ecosystem of 120-plus retail chains that are working together, uh, you know, with us. Uh, they're seeing it all day, every day in their parking lots and in their store places as their people travel. Um, they're the people that are bringing them their goods as they deliver goods to people's homes and things like that. So a lot going on. I, I guess one other question I had was, um, what are some other complementary place and crime analytical tools that you've used or you're familiar with? You've talked about RTM, risk train modeling. Um, what are What are some other that are out there that you're familiar with? So I've used quite a few over the years. Um, even when I teach, even when I work with departments, I usually view it as what is easily accessible, little to no cost. I've mentioned it before, but Microsoft Excel does so much now in terms of data analysis. They have an extension for a data analysis tool pack where you can do a lot of crime analysis, data analysis within Microsoft Excel. That is just fascinating. If you want to get into more advanced statistical programs and techniques, you have R, which is free, but it's a steep learning curve. You have SAS data. I was trained during my master's and PhD on SPSS. I'm now delving deep into R, which is kind of scary to think about, but it's a good one out there. Another free one that's through the National Institute of Justice is CrimeStat. I've used that for years. It has numerous spatial temporal analytical tool, a heck of a manual to go through, tons of examples. I use Geoda quite a bit, and then as well as the near repeat calculator, those kind of my go-to software programs I would say I use frequently. And before I let you go on that, that uh, that's good insight. You mentioned near repeats. Could you kind of quickly reinforce with our audience uh, what are repeats, near repeats, phantoms, and so forth, uh, Grant? Yeah, so the near-repeat idea is repeat victimization or repeat occurrence. So a near-repeat could be within a close time and space window. So how is it the same address So truly repeat victimization in a couple of days, a week, two weeks, depending on what type of incident you're looking at. So some might be more valuable. What's the likelihood of re-victimization within a week, say for burglary? Is it heightened? for just that residence, or is it a, the neighborhood effect, the larger area around it? So the near repeat idea is, if something has occurred, the likelihood of it occurring in a small time window and in a smaller scale spatially. So that's what it's really enforcing is, is there repeat a contagion effect to it? Once one occurs, are there multiple that should be suspected afterwards or expected? Perfect. And there you go. We want to dig in and understand why did they hit the first place? Why did they not hit other places nearby that seem to be exposed to similar or the same conditions, even the, the same offender base or uh, you know social and built environmental factors? So that that's interesting. So let me go back over to Tom. Tom, any other questions, comments, suggestions here? Uh, you know, just to, for the listener, I think um, one thing that you, you really hit is um, – that there are some free tools out there and there's somewhere to start. So for Excel, if, if you were thinking of Excel and there was a retailer that wanted to really do some basics, is the data analyst tool set the best way to do? Should they be doing clustering? What, what, where's a good start for someone that's gonna go to Google 
because the reality is you, our audience and listen is so vast. There are a lot of folks that are going to listen to this and literally go, what can I do today? Um, you know, so if you were saying starting fresh because they're going to Google how to do it, what in Excel is is the best way to start if you're if you're thinking of using relationship or mapping to uh, let's just say a risk model of any sort for a retailer, whether it's a, a violence risk model um, or a shrink prediction model, understanding that they're going to get the data, they're going to have to put that. But what's what's the best kind of starting point to play with, if you will? I think the best starting point is Excel. You know your social locations, and if you're in an area that has publicly accessible crime data, you can just put that in Excel, and it will give you the option to filter or select certain crime types. But you can drill into your store locations. If you have multiple ones, you can move around. It's through, they integrate Bean Maps since it is a Microsoft product. Starting there is phenomenal. It gives you the option to make a density map, so the clusters of it, so you can look at how dense crime is in certain areas, what's it look like around different store locations, different streets themselves, or even where crime's not occurring. What's different about those environments that creates a cold spot to where crime is not occurring in certain places, but is in others. I do that frequently, with, especially with departments or agencies that have no analytical uh, team with in-house. I start Excel because typically people know or are uncomfortable with Excel. When you start talking about pay for programs or something where they have to go out and learn something brand new. There are so many tutorial videos on Excel. It is so helpful. I still watch them quite a bit. Even though I'm slowly making some crime specific ones for my students, Excel is the go-to one through pivot tables, even to show relationships just on time of day and day of week of occurrence, a temporal heat map. It's a great tool just to start there to understand relationships with crime occurrence from an analytical, even crime of place standpoint. Great. Thank you very much. I, I think that's a, you probably will have a bunch of people who are Googling it right now and uh, taking a look at <laughs> seeing and throwing their stuff in there because you'll find that most of the folks that are listening to this, if in the retail world, already have that spreadsheet and are already doing some sort of regression or relationship analysis <laughs> and really looking to get to that next step. Um, so I, I, I think uh, that's it for me, Reed. I want to thank you, Grant. Um, and uh, from everybody that's working with us on the uh, anti-violence innovation chain, um, we want to also thank you, uh, Grant, for all that you're doing to help us on the data and mapping component of that to help us more visually, graphically understand dynamics and understand uh, what happens, what are the effects when we put in some anti-crime measures in certain test locations, what happens there and nearby. So. Um, that's a big thank you for, for all of us and uh, feel part of the team and we appreciate your participation today. Thank you both for the time and if there's any questions, always feel free to reach out. Absolutely. Have a great day. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council and sponsored by Bosch Security. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more crime science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Ellis Prevention Research Council.